Hello and welcome to Of Poetry Podcast, episode 19, with the poet Donna Voyer. Donna Voyer is the author of To Everything There Is, 2020, Every Love Story is an Apocalypse Story, 2016, and A House of Many Windows, 2013, all from Sundress Publications. Her work appears or is forthcoming in Plowshares, Waxwing, Poet Lore, Cherry Tree, Salamander, Harper Palette, and other journals. She lives in the suburbs of Chicago, where she serves as an associate editor for Rhino Poetry and hosts the monthly online reading series, A Hundred Pictures of Honey. Hello and welcome, Donna. Hello and welcome to, uh, welcome to you. I'm welcoming you as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I feel like we could start this conversation in so many different places. Um, you know, some of your bios contain the line that you're a, a veteran middle school teacher. So I love right. that you have veteran status. Um, <laughs> and, um, and this one focuses on, um, you know, it's always interesting what comes out in a poet's bio, right? Like you have your full links listed here. <laughs> Uh, but you also have a number of chapbooks. How many chapbooks do you have? I have eight, I believe. Wow. Um, and are some of them collaborative? No. No. Okay. No. I thought I saw something about a forthcoming collaborative, but I wish I oh. like collaborating with people, but um, okay, no, nice. that is not the case. Wow. So you have eight and, and those are all from, are they different presses? With different presses. Uh, one is a uh, was a local press that that no longer exists. That was really like my first one, and then um, my first one with finishing line before I knew too much about them, um, and then uh, one from Pork Belly, mm -hmm. uh, two from Dancing Girl Press, uh, one from Maverick Duck Press, and um, two with Redbird, uh, who just started publishing again, which I'm very happy about because they make beautiful chapbooks. Yes. Yes. Oh, I feel like your bio should read Donna Voyer is the author of 11 titles or, or 11 books, because that is a lot of work, eight chat books. That is an incredible amount. Um, and I mean, they're just each their own. Oh, do, do they, are they, are they discreet or do, are they, do they come into play with your full lengths? The the, the, first, the one from Finishing Line was a precursor to my first full-length collection, but otherwise chapbooks for me usually end up being obsessions, mm. um, a series of poems that I keep writing into that don't really belong with or work and play well with mm -hmm. uh, other poems that I'm writing. Um, they usually end up being their own little universes or narratives. Yeah. Uh, or formally they end up, um, there's a, the one of them from Dancing Girl is called uh, We Build Houses of Our Bodies. And every poem starts with that title and line. Um, so th they end up being obsessions for me. So they're, they're yes. usually completely separate entities from mm -hmm. whatever themes may be emerging for mm -hmm. a full length collection. I love that. And that is how I feel about my one chat book is that it was its own, like its own little project. And I keep having these, like, do I take some of those poems and put them into mine? But I don't, I don't think so. I think they actually live there. They live at Ethel Press. Um, so I, I think that's a, such a, 
kind of beautiful flexibility of chat books to bring up into conversation, right? That it's not like you, there's a law that you have to like weave your chat book into your full length or because half the time, the biggest problem with the full length is figuring out what you need to take out because right. You put everything in there. Or where there are holes and (laughs) they can't necessarily be plugged just by plugging in poems, older poems. Yes. Um, I think that's one of the benefits I have of not having had any education as a writer. Like I don't have an MFA or anything. And so I don't know the rules, you know, or what you're supposed to do, Mm -hmm. um, which makes it easier for me to just do what feels good for the poems. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I know. Um, I mean, I was joking about it on Twitter this morning, but like, it's not poetics, like not a code and more like guidelines really, you know, (laughs) and everyone discovers them differently. And everyone, even if you've had a really privileged education, you can have like you, the the variety of teachers out there and how you're going to learn about things, very different. Um, I was just on a panel last night and I brought up the fact that like self-permission is so important to your writing and that an MFA did not give me that nothing like it's something that you you do for yourself and it's really really hard work um but there's nothing that like there's no there's no board there's no like we think sometimes there are like if I just get x then I will feel so good about myself and external validation feels really great for a hot minute but it goes away just blows away. I think the external validation that's been important for me has been from um, my education was mostly through workshops. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of summers, probably 15, 16 in a row, even um, taking classes at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival because it gave me access to really talented people. Um, And, you know, over the years, especially like Diana Getch, who was a great mentor Mm -hmm. to me, um, the first class I took with her, I was still very unsure as to whether this is something I should even be trying to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, in my mind, wasting my time, wasting our money, you know, trying to make this happen. And mm-hmm. Diana was the first person that said, no, there's, there's, there's a fire in you mm-hmm. and you need to do this. Mm-hmm. And that has, that has, that kind of validation was super yes. important to me yes. um, because I was writing in, in the, and you know this as a parent too, you know, writing in the, in, in the between times, in the, in the nap times, in the yeah. sitting in the car waiting for him to come out of guitar lessons times, in the, mm-hmm. you know, moments in a, in a planned period at school when, you know, I had, you know, a, a moment to breathe and then, and then just writing in the summer when I had time. Um, so it was, a, it was work to find the time to do it. And it was nice to hear from someone that the work was was something that I should do, that I yeah. should keep going because there was a lot of doubt about whether or not I should be bothering <clears throat> in my own mind. Yeah, that is truly one of the greatest gifts is to have someone say, um, you could do this, like you could do this. And it's not that you have to do whatever that thing is, but it's so like I had a professor during my MFA, he was actually in the philosophy department and I would take philosophy classes for fun and he um he's he said you know you could get a phd you could do the philosophy if you wanted you could do that 
And it was so hugely validating. And like, no, I didn't actually want to go do that. Um, but it was, it was huge because um, especially like as, you know, at that time I really strongly identified as a woman poet and I had been told by my parents, I wasn't academic. I had been told I wasn't logical. And then to have mm-hmm. someone say, you're good at this um, is huge and it's such a gift. And I know you've probably done it for other people and young writers so. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have all kinds of questions for you. Um, okay. And I would love to hear you read a poem first. Um, okay. Because usually we start off with that right away. And I was already so eager to talk with you that of course <laughs> I got sidetracked. That's fine. So um, I'll, I'll read a poem from awesome. um, my latest collection. Thank you. Which is called uh, In the Encyclopedia of Human Gestures. Kneeling again at the altar of my dog's shit, a genuflection of civic duty, the park equipped with plastic bags to ensure my reverence. I am struck by this position. For what better evidence of the divine than the workings of the body, all its wastes and contortions, the joints ball and socket, rolling with the bend, the foot's tension arcing to balance on the toes, the orchestration of the hands that comb the grass to scoop the mess, the same hands that will later survey this aging flesh, the same hands that will run soft across the lush landscape of your body, the one I know by touch and scent, animal in my devotion, as we both falter toward our demise, into days that host obstacles our younger selves would dismiss, lowering instead into a different type of worship, one that requires no words. And isn't this also something holy? Both of us bending to curve into the other's failings, blending all the broken parts together in a silhouette that resembles prayer. Thank you. Um, I mean, what an incredible poem to, to get from dog shit down to, um, something that's deeply, I mean, it's like a deep eroticism at the end of this poem, right? Um, and to have the title, the encyclopedia of human gestures, um, I think the title is a line from a Ross Gay essay called tomato on board. that I heard him read before the book of delights came out and it's just stayed with me um oh I love that for a very long time which makes me feel like a bad person who did not look at your notes (laughs) I do I usually yeah I usually it must have just slipped by me um that is so that's so wonderful I love that connection with Ross Gay and your work and um this is um this is actually did I read it backwards did I read forwards I think I read backwards yes I think I read your books in reverse order so I read to everything there is and then every love wait is that correct yes and then every love story is an apocalypse story and then a house of new one so I was really interested um in looking at what things you're interested in now and what had come forward with you and how you had changed. So like, so sometimes it's easier for me to see that if I read a poet's works uh, backwards. That's interesting. Um, 
but I, I just really want to say that you are such a sexy poet. You write sex and intimacy so well. Um, gorgeous. And um, in fact, let me, where is the poem I read to my partner? Oh, oh, because I was telling you, I was like, oh, wow, like Donna is such like an erotic or such a like, oh, like such an, I don't know if I use the word erotic. Um, and then um, I read them the poem and they were like, oh, sexy poet. <laughs> they were like, oh, sexy. And I was like, yes. Okay. Um, I, I really want to find the poem and I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to find it. You remember the name of it? Um, it, it ends with the soft, the, it's like the morning of your mouth. The, I know I posted it on Twitter. Let's see. This is the unfortunate thing about reading. <laughs> and it's, for me, it's, I mean, if this were the newest book, I probably would be able to jump to it right away. Do you know how you go back and read your older work sometimes and you're like, oh, I wrote that. Wow. You don't even remember that you wrote it. Well, while, while we're looking this poem up, I'll just say that. Um, so what was really interesting to me is also that the image of the fox um, comes up in your um, newest book to everything there is. And that's you know this trope in that very popular when it came out show um fleabag right have you seen fleabag okay. i i have not watched it no oh you're so lucky <laughs> now you have something oh my goodness like i'm so something jealous. new to watch now yes you haven't seen it yet oh my god it's so good okay oh it's so good okay well now i feel like i'm, I'm well i don't think i'm gonna spoil it there is a fox there's no, a fox that fine. appears throughout the show um, okay. And um, it is definitely a symbol of desire, um, eroticism. Like there's something about the, you know, the, the fox being, and it's this, um, right, it's this incredibly old image. Um, I mean, I think it's like one of those like medieval images. It, it typically comes back to to desire and and um although maybe that's maybe I'm confusing it with the leopard that was something I was very interested in I'm not going to be able to find this I was I'm scanning through the book too and I'm not finding it I mean well it'll, it'll pop up at some point I'm sure um the fox I think came first in the um in the, in the poem about my mother in the last rites poem. Mm -hmm. um, because there was just the surreal quality to um, the speed of her decline. And it was kind of a, a fever dream of a few weeks. And there just seemed to, the, the, the image of a fox seemed to 
kind of permeate my thoughts in a way when I was writing the poem as something that is beautiful and elusive um, and yet wild and and um, can't really be controlled or tamed. You don't really just think of tame foxes often. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so this image of the fox as something that was appearing to maybe return her to that wildness mm-hmm. um, was something that, that seemed to work for that poem. And then when I thought about those same terms later, you know, that is kind of, you know, beautiful, wild and, and uncontrolled, then it seemed like the perfect way to, to the perfect image to use in the final love poem as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had to write those love poems while I was writing the elegy poems or I would have gone insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I wrote a letter to my friend last year and I was like, I don't want to write about grief anymore. <laughs> yeah. And but that's kind of not how it works. You know, it comes up when it comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, but using images from nature were very helpful to me in working mm-hmm. through some of those poems. Um, so there, I mean, I don't think there's there was any other, you know, deliberate kind of um, connection to the fox other than other than that. Yeah, I think your work is really open to the animal and also the animal of the human, right? Yes. Um, and the body is animal. Um, so, I mean, and I remember seeing, okay, so like the Abad after a dream of fox and pines. Would you like to read that poem? Sure. I actually know where that one is. Yes. Abad after a dream of fox and pines. We fit together, planked fence against a forest. But what if I had never found you? If the fox had eaten that egg before it hatched? More than half a life together, and still I cannot fathom the answer. I feel no need to stay wild, and yet I have not grown fully tame. I ramble dig up truffle and shit, come home stained with both to find you still welcoming. I have made a fine choice, I think, nuzzling the soft hairs at the back of your neck. How brazen to say that love is a choice. I just realized we that's the first poem in the book and the last poem in the book, and we start and end with shit, which I... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I ever noticed that before. <laughs> That's amazing. It's one of my favorite words. So I love that you use it <laughs> um, because I use it in my poems too. There's something, I mean, it's just so beautifully earthy and um, I mean, it's old. I think like when these words are old, there's this story of Sir Walter Raleigh. And I mean, it's like a quote, he was at court and he was telling someone like, I laugh so hard that I beshitteth my pants. <laughs> I just, like, I love it. Um, okay. Yeah. I was not able to find your poem while we were talking and I was slipping through, but I know it's, I wake in the soft morning of your mouth. And I, I remember that line, but I, now I'm just struggling to find the poem. So one of the, you know, maybe before we're done talking, we'll, I'll find it and we'll figure it out. You know, I think that's such a beautiful thing about poetry that you can forget the poem and remember a line that just bowls you over. Stays with you. Yep. 
Yeah. And um, that it's like a very nurturing aspect of poetry, like that it, it almost comes back. I want to say, I want to use the word like mothers you or cares for you or um, that there's something, I don't know, I, I've been doing a lot of um, meditation lately. I just made my first milestone on insight timer and I have 10 straight days of meditation. I'm so Yay. excited. I got a star. I'm very, very motivated by uh, like stars. So I understand that completely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, one of the meditations was talking about like you're listening to your breath and you're letting your breath massage your organs and your body and just you know, it kind of reminds me of like RSL's Gramai's work and like how we think about tenderness is like, yes. what is like the way that Gramai can look at a um, conveyor belt with luggage at the airport. And that can be this tender thing bringing you, you know, just incredible. Like it's really shows you that like poetry is about a specific way of, of attending to the world. Um. And I think that does, you know, tie into um, the way you don't separate animals into like, it's not like there's like the rational animal human poet. And then there's like the wild box, like there's something wild about the human animal. There's something untamed. There's something very like earthy and um, primal. I almost want to say. I think those, you know, those images are are ones that I go to a lot in my work because not because I I've ever lived in, you know, a wild place. You know, I'm a child of the suburbs. I grew up, you know, very close to the city of Chicago in a suburb that was maybe 10 minutes outside the city. And I'm a little further now, but still in a similar place. But there we've always had a, an affinity for I don't like to sleep outside. Let's make that clear. Mm. I am not a camper, but Same. I will go outside <laughs> anywhere. Um, and that time that I spend in nature and I'm fascinated by different animals and where we live now, we live near a forest preserve. And so we get deer and fox and, oh, and raccoon wow. and, and all manner of coyotes and all manner of birds um, oh, in wow. our area. <clears throat> so we're lucky in the sense that we have that that sort of feeling of being mm. in a forest or in the country very very close by I mean I can walk a mile away and be in a, a large forest preserve where wow. deer and all those animals live um so they're they're prevalent and my my mother loved animals um mm. and so you know as kids we always you know, had, you know, whatever, whatever, I can't remember what the kids national geo was it Ranger Rick or something like that. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we always were, were being exposed to, you know, nature facts and, and things like that. And mm -hmm. both of my brothers, especially my younger brother um, are like, my brother lives in, in Georgia on a mountain, literally far away from other people. And um, will just loves being just in the wild, hmm. you know, um, camping, hiking, he'll go for weeks in his, you know, camper and just hit trails. And, um, and so even though we didn't grow up doing that, mm -hmm. we, we've all have our own kind of affinity for the natural world that shows up in 
you know, what we do in our, in our lives mm -hmm. as people, our very different lives as, mm -hmm. as adults. In thinking about things that run throughout all your full length collections, um, I mean, to say that you're like a very sexy poet, a very erotic poet, also a poet very focused on love. Um, and I don't think you can say that about every single poet. Like that's not, it's not the case. Uh, first of all, writing a sexy poem is really hard. Like really, really good. Writing a good erotic poem because it's all about, it's, for me, it's about what you conceal. It's always about like the absence and the silence that you're kind of writing into and around in a very particular way, um, in a very sensual way for me. Um, but I was thinking about how love as your focus, um, and I, I will never not be thinking about Augustine's line that Richard Wilbur used to title his poem, Love Calls Us to the Things of This World, right? That, that all your books deal with love and that your most recent book really deals with like love for your mother. Like it, it's like, it's a memorial book too. Um, it's not, it's, I would never be like, this is a poem. You know, this is a book just about grief. This is a poem just about reconciliation. Like I'd be like, no, this is also a love poem. Um, and then I think of the epigraph for your first full length, The House of Many Windows, which is so interesting in epigraph because A, it's from a prose, well, I, I know he wrote poetry, but it wasn't, it wasn't his forte, but uh, <laughs> maybe I'm gonna, I don't know, maybe I'll hear back from people on that who love Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, poetry, but it's Robert Louis Stevenson. And the epigraph is, the body is a house of many windows. There we all sit showing ourselves and crying on the passerby to come and love us, which is huge. And I, I think it's a brilliant epigraph and I think it runs, like, I think it is an epigraph for all your books. Oh, um, can you yeah. tell me how you came to it? I, I, I came across it in, in, in just my, I don't know where in my reading, it might've even been like, dare I say, like in a quote book, you know, um, because I don't read a lot of Stevenson, um, you know, on my own. Um, but I think because the book is, you know, kind of about the challenge that happens to a relationship um, when you're going through the infertility process and trying and, and failing um, mm -hmm. to have a child, that that idea that that, you know, the whole world, when you're trying to have a child and you can't, the whole world has kids. Yeah. You know, and so you are always kind of looking through this window yeah. out at a life that you want, mm -hmm. at a life that you want to come in, you know, to your house. And um, that idea of it, you know, of, you know, crying, uh, crying on the passersby to come yeah. and love us, like this kind of idea that you just want to be bestowed with what, yeah. what the passersby have. So, I mean, I think it just hit me um, and I didn't have a title for the book at that time. And so, I mean, that was, that was the impetus also for the title. So I got really lucky in whatever I was reading. Um, and then I got also really lucky that I was at one of the only residencies I've ever done with this, uh, the artist who did the cover, um, oh, Christine wow. Shank, who is a photographer and, and actually created miniature landscapes mm. where things were happening inside houses that weren't supposed to be inside houses. Oh, and then amazing. would photograph these tiny houses um, 
and I didn't have a, you know, I had a, uh, I didn't have a cover image for the book either. And she was like, well, you can look at some of my work. And so there were all these kind of lucky happenstances, I think that, that pulled everything together at the end. Um, wow. For that and this book. one is that, so the cover of this book has um, two small or two windows and they're lit and there's is it in there's a light beyond them and then in the front of them is that moss like flowering moss or yes and it, i mean it's, it's actually um so it's like it's it's meant to show that the the growth is happening inside the house mm. because the light is coming in through the windows yes. onto for uh, onto so um this kind of reversal that she mm. was doing of you know things that were inside that mm -hmm. that weren't supposed to be inside where the book is really about the opposite you know problem you know yeah. wanting to to be able to be a house for something mm -hmm. that you couldn't be a house for so we thought it was a really nice marriage of image and and um mm -hmm. and theme and I got really lucky with with that I think that's beautiful thank you for naming the artist um, um Christine Shank from her interiors series entitled you promised to listen which I also thought was really so I love paratext and all the tiny little things I thought that was an incredible little moment when I saw that yes I highly recommend looking up her work online oh, it's know. it's really interesting and we'll link to that in the show notes too so listeners can check out Christine Shank as well that said oh it made me think of yesterday I misread online um it's, it, I find the whole body in the house is so interesting so like uh, it's just like this deep psychological connection of image with body and house. And, you know, Emma Bolden wrote The House is an Enigma, which is an incredible book along um, many of the same themes. And, um, you know, I think a Bachelard's um, book, The Poetics of Space, which, it, which a lot of people love that just gets into this. Um, and then yesterday I misread this line it, um, as... The heaviest house is the house with the storm inside. And it was, it was actually the heaviest cloud is the cloud with the storm inside, which is still beautiful. But when I read it as the house with the storm inside, I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I mean, it, we, we, that's the way we all experience the world with a body. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, technically the body is, is our home. And so, um, you know, that, that idea. I mean, I've been writing a lot about, I think I've been writing about the body since I started writing and, and, you know, that's shifting now as I get older, you know, where I'm starting to write about, you know, kind of the aging body, mm -hmm. um, you know, and what's that, what that's like, especially as, you know, as a woman. Um, and it's, you know, it's an, it's an endless source of um, material. I mean, I live in this body every day. So, um, and I, and I just find it I'm really interesting, you know, I, I'm kind of, um, that, you know, that, that you call, you know, that you're calling me a sexy poet, I think is, is to me kind of funny, you know, because I think that, um, you know, a love poet, yeah, I, I would say for sure, you know, I'm, I'm all in with the, you know, old, uh, Paul McCartney, you know, let's fill the world with, with silly love songs. Mm. Um, because those are the two, you know, that that's something that, I think that's why I go to nature images so often too, is these are the things that are, are kind of universal. You know, everyone has experience with, with some sort of something outside mm -hmm. um, in the world. Everybody mm -hmm. has a body, 
you know, hopefully everybody, hopefully everyone has known some sort of love, um, whether that's, you know, through, you know, just an animal or a person or whatever that may be. And I think, you know, I wish people wrote more love poems because I think the people who are writing contemporary love poems are doing some really important work of, of not only blowing up the old vision of love poems you know because those are all like oh isn't love wonderful and Mm. you know love is new Mm -hmm. and love is great or it's oh woe is me my love Mm -hmm. is gone um but doing the the work of of showing the everyday kind of challenges and joys and mess of a love like I think of like you know Matthew Olsman's Mountain Deer commercial um disguise as a love poem or Mm -hmm. Darren Demery's series of Emily as poems to Mm -hmm. his wife or a lot of um, Amor Akui's poems are really love poems if you read them carefully. Um, And I love those that you're elevating the everyday life of a love that it's not some idealistic thing or some you know pure romance that there's mm-hmm. something and I think because I've been in such a long relationship I think that's a different kind of love poem for me so like that that intimacy for me is I have an access to it that's very different from other people mm-hmm. like my husband and I started dating and got engaged when we were 19 years old wow. um I'm 59 you know we've been together for 40 years wow and you know still feel pretty young, you know, so I think there are years to go, you know, but that's, you know, not the kind of love that people are usually writing about Mm -hmm. uh, when they write love poems. And so I think I have an opportunity to maybe access a different type of experience when I'm writing those poems. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it's that, that length of of intimacy Mm. that makes them seem sexy. I don't know. Oh, I mean, I mean, and when I say sexy, I mean that there's like literal sex in your poems. Um, and I, I think that's amazing. And like, um, I think that's, I think it's incredible. I think a lot of us don't do that. Um, I, I personally love teaching, um, especially queer love poems. And, um, when I teach intro to creative writing and like, um, I think of Danica Kelly's, um, uh, the centaur poem from Beastiary. Yes. So good. Um, or, um, Adrian Rich's the floating poem from 21 love poems that is like, has like the rose wet cave image. Um, and it's just like, uh, that's one of the most graphic, like, of course it's in like a poetic image. It's one of the most graphic love poems. I've, it's like amazing. Um, and so I think that it's, it's really, I think it's so hard to write a good love poem. And the ones I write for my partner are always, um, like they are the most, I don't want to say masked, but, um, I'm like really shy about it. Um, and so like, I'm really challenging myself not to be so shy. Um, and that's hard. <laughs> Well, and, and I think that's why, like you, you were talking about the power of, of poems like th- that, of sexy poems that, you know, where what's concealed is important. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, part of that is that I probably would not be comfortable writing something, mm-hmm. you know, graphic 
you know, um, in any way, shape or form. So those, those other, um, mm-hmm. maybe those, that concealment is, is also a way for me to mm-hmm. be comfortable uh, mm-hmm. as a writer, especially if something's going out into the world. Mm. Which is an interesting I mean, idea. there are, you know, the whole like um, bad sex fiction award thing and they're like yes. terrible. They're terrible. <laughs> so bad. Um, and I just, Personally, I think poets do it best. Um, I think poets write love and sex best. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I would, you know, love seeing more of it. Um, the concealment that made me think of something and maybe it will come back to me. Um, in the meantime, would you, since we were just talking about a House of Many Windows, would you like to read the title poem on page 23? Sure. A house of many windows, open wide to the weather, outside world intruding, crisp whisper of autumn slipping under its sills, dullness of summer settling in its sashes, open wide to destruction, hailstorm branches breaking roof tiles, sliding past jagged stars of broken casement to crash on the concrete, open for inspection, Flung wide in warm spring, daydreams curtained in linen, every panel clear, unless shades are pulled against the prying light. Open wide, a wound, a mouth blowing heated breath to cloud the pain, to rub a spot clean, murmuring, here I am, over here, let me out. Thank you. I haven't read that poem in a long time. It reminds me of, um, I mean, the open wide to destruction, right? Um, that is such a that is such a powerful um, invocation, and um, it makes me think of too of um, Chelsea Dingham's um, "Through a Small Ghost." Through a small ghost. Yeah. Beautiful book. Yeah. Being open to the body's own destruction, right? That like there are parts of our bodies that just don't give us what we want them to give us. And like, um, and being like open to that and accepting that instead of repressing that and being like, everything's okay. Everything's fine. Right. Um, And this is such a, a, a good therapy move, right? It's such a good, I think writers do this really well. Um, the whole, you know, I just read that little quote on Twitter the other day that's from, um, oh, who was it by? I wrote out the text about the wounds, like if the wound was the light. Oh, with the light, uh, that, yes. uh, is that Ann Carson? Yes, of course that's Ann Carson. <laughs> Damn Ann Carson, forgetting all the good lines, okay? <laughs> She's got them all. She got them all. She, she must have a box. She wins. <laughs> I think personally, I think it's the four desks. I know I've brought this up before because I'm obsessed with it as someone who would love more space in their house. Who doesn't? But like four separate desks for all the different projects and you move between them. But yeah, that if you turn like the, if the, if the light is coming through the wound, you could turn off all the lamps in the house and it would all be lit. Um, and I think that is the power. Right. I mean, of of a lot of our writing that we go into the dark or 
Um, I recently read this Glennis Redmond's poem about, it's called like first poetry teacher. And the image of it is going down into a mine shaft. And like, that's where the poet goes, like into that dark mine shaft. And it's like, it's because there's value there. There are things in the dark waiting for us um, that are good, beautiful things. Um, Even though the whole like, box of darkness that you know from mary oliver some of the responses are like people have said like i just want to throw away that box of darkness and i'm like yeah i I agree (laughs) like yeah there's well there's you know there needs to be space for joy yes in poetry which i don't think we see enough of either Mm. um there's a great carl sandberg line from an old old not famous poem of his that i love that i think is um i'm gonna remember it i'm gonna remember it correctly so give me a second It's let joy kill you. Keep away from the little deaths. Oh my God. That's so good. Yeah. Carl Sandburg is one of my first favorite poets. I think it's from a poem that's just called joy. I had this beautiful gift, um, retirement gift from my husband where he, he often tries to find some kind of, you know, special edition poetry book or some kind of antique book or something for, for special occasions for me, because he knows that that I'd like that better than other gifts. Yes. And he found a set of bound um the first like eight volumes of poetry magazine that were bound and so I've been reading them wow and you know reading like these issues that were like Carl Sandburg and Sarah Teasdale and Amy Lowell and T.S. Eliot some really crappy poems by T.S. Eliot <laughs> and um you know and, and all these people now that we consider to be you know these mm. kind of lions of, of poetry mm. um and so it's been really interesting to, to read some poems that aren't anthologized by these poets or that aren't mm-hmm. famous by these poets. Um, I mean, Amy Lowell has a 19, it was I think in 1915 or something like one of those, um, a piece called Red Slippers that basically is like a hybrid poetic essay. Oh, so cool. people think that's new. It's not. Um, I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that, but I love that line about, about joy because I think, mm-hmm. and I think when I wrote the third book, like that's, I needed to balance, you know, because when you're kind of mired in grief and caretaking and, you know, five minutes, five months after I lost my mom and lost my dad, um, you need the net of, mm-hmm. of love and joy and the things that are beautiful in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, without that net, you're, you're sunk. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, when you talk about giving ourselves permission to write, you know, I think I do try to give myself permission to write love poems, to write poems about mm-hmm. joy, because, you know, not, you know, not everything is, is, you know, I mean, the world's terrible, mm-hmm. but there are still beautiful things in it. And there are still joys, big and small every day. Yeah that um that need to be celebrated and those may not be the types of poems maybe that Mm. that are that are you know the it poems or the poems Mm. that are going to Mm -hmm. you know uh catch the attention you know of a a big journal or a prize or something Mm. like that but I think they're necessary Mm. poems um and I think that's why I love so much like like I said I mentioned Darren Demery's series of Emily as poems and he's been writing them for years. I mean, and he published a book of them and he's still writing them, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that, you know, that those are just such poems of pure, um, 
love, right? And there, there are moments of everyday love. I mean, mm. that's where those poems come from. Um, that every time there's a new one, I, you know, I rush to read it. So I think it gives me, yeah. um, it gives me something that, you know, there are b- brilliant poems about, you know, the problems in the world and those poems mm-hmm. give me something different. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about, um, do you know, do you know about negativity bias? I know the term, but okay. I couldn't, if you asked me to explain it to you, I probably couldn't. I only recently learned about it because I think I was reading the book. It didn't start with you on epigenetic trauma. Um, and negativity bias is how um, our memories, how our biological memories and our brains um, remember what our negative experiences um, much more strongly than our positive ones because it's an evolutionary like tactic for the body to protect yourself right. in the future. Um, which is why <laughs> it makes me so angry. <laughs> I'm like, I was like, what? We have a bias this way? Like, and that's why if you have a great conversation with someone and you say one thoughtless thing, like you remember like, oh God, I said that, that thoughtless thing, not the wonderful conversation you had. Right. Right. Or you remember the terrible things about your parents and it's easier to overlook a lot of the amazing things about your parents or whatever, you know, right. um, and, um, so I think that on the one hand, there's this, like, to write joy is to push back, right. Against a negative against bias. Yeah. yeah. And to say, and that's why gratitude journals, like you actually do have to make it a focused practice and a labor. It's not just like you sit around on your front step waiting for joy to come to you. Um, like you have to go out and meet joy, right? Like it's, if like the body is the windows and you're behind the windows, like it's actually, there's something about like opening the door and going outside, um, and greeting others and, um, greeting joy. And, um, and I think part of that, like why you can get to it is when you have gone through, when you've taken care of some of the things that need to be taken care of, like it's, it's, not like you go straight to joy. Like you don't get to the mountaintop without climbing the mountain that there's, there's like a deep water to wade through or whatever metaphor. Um, and I was thinking about this, there's been over 200 studies on, um, on like taking two control groups of students and having them write 20 minutes a day and 20 and, and half of them write just about their day, what they did that day and half of them right about the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to them for 20 minutes and they do this every day I think it's like for a month or 20 days or something and at the end of that period the group that feels incredible is the group that has written out their trauma and and it's so um it's so counterintuitive I was gonna say because it sounds like a terrible thing to do to somebody (laughs) to make them relive their trauma every day for 20 minutes um (laughs) uh my my therapist is having me do this I haven't started yet but um I'm looking for the joy I'm looking for what comes beyond it and I'm I'm trusting in the fact that writing it out but that when you have things in your body that are more than verbal that are imagistic that are like that they're actually like they're in your body and so like articulating them and getting them on paper is a way of kind of bringing it you know um I can't think of a better 
word right now than like an exorcism by <laughs> taking it out of your body being like I don't want this in my body putting anymore. it somewhere else yeah yeah and I I think it's kind of like underestimated how much poetry does that for writers it um, does and I think reading and writing it yes I know that you know one of the things that kind of kept me you know sane when I was taking you know when when taking care of my mother those last mm. few weeks was I was actually reviewing um, I had a review deadline for, uh, for Jose Aldevedez's book, Citizen Illegal, mm-hmm. and spending time, you know, reading, you know, about his, you know, his poems about his family and his, mm-hmm. um, his growing up and his relationship with his mother and his, and his father, which was, you know, some of those poems are very tender. Um, that was kind of a buoy for me mm-hmm. to be really thrown into somebody else's mm. uh, emotional life yeah. um, when I was, you know, struggling with my own. Um, so I think reading poetry can, can sometimes bring us out of that, our own darkness mm. as well. Um, not just the writing, writing it out of the body, but also mm. maybe seeing it reflected elsewhere mm. is really important. Amen. Yeah. No, I think of, um, for me, it's been, um, Jenny George, Jenny Moberg, um, uh, Emily Skaha, like that have written. Oh, Brute is such a good book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And they've all (laughs) written about trauma. Um, and, um, I mean, I also think of, um, Sumita's book, Arrow, um, you know, all these books are like, how, how do you deal with these things? Um, and it's, yeah, writing, writing. I think it's really scary to be told, like I had Monica Yoon told me at Red Loaf, like you need to, like, you need to go into the scary parts. You need to go into this. And, um, I was ready to hear it, but I wasn't ready to do it at all. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and hey, shout out, shout out to therapy and meds and, and taking <laughs> care of yourself and everything else, because we don't take care of ourselves alone or on our own. And actually one of the biggest things in my life, why I'm taking care of myself right now is because I had multiple women poets tell me to take care of myself. Um, Jessica Cuello, Casey yep. Judds. I like, I really, you know, um, Rhett Eisman Troll, like these people have been so encouraging to me. Um, and we need those close people that will, yes, that will like tell us to take care. Cause I mean, your last book has so much caretaking in it. Um, and that is like such a, a love labor. Um, and in fact, the front cover, which is stunning, this piece of art. Can you Claire talk Morgan. about it? Yes. Yes. Claire, Claire Morgan is an artist that I discovered several years ago um, when I was visiting my son in Nashville, I went to the museum there and she had an exhibition there um, and it just blew me away. I think I stayed in that section of the museum for three hours. Mm -hmm. She does work with um, natural items and taxidermied animals. Um, And I've been following her work ever since I went to the museum and um, when I was looking for cover art, I was like, oh, she's an internationally like galleried artist. Like she's not going to like give us mm-hmm. 
cover image for mm -hmm. this, you know, small press book. Um, and she was just so, so lovely to work with. But the this image just stayed with me because I think it's, you know, so indicative of kind of the life cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a nest, which is, you know, birth and nurturing. Mm -hmm. And yet suspended above the nest is this, with this ball, which looks like, you know, it could be a, some kind of celestial body, but it's actually composed of flies. They're all individually strung on, on these um, nylon strings. She, she does work like that also with individual um, dandelion seeds. Oh my goodness. If you look up her work, it's incredible. Oh, wow. Um, and I thought it's, it was because, you know, we associate flies with carrion and, mm -hmm. and then death and, you know, around here, there's a lot of roadkill. So we often see flying. So it seemed like such a perfect image for kind of a book that's about, you know, both death and love and how we carry, you know, mm -hmm. that like the ball is really being held there by, you know, by the nest and how we let go. It's also floating away. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was, like I said, stunned that she was, she was so kind. Um, I you know, dealt a lot with her, you know, assistant, um, but she's been wonderful, you know, wow. and she wanted to read, you know, she wanted to read the book, mm -hmm. you know, which I really admired, you know, that she, wow. didn't just, she didn't just blankly say, oh, sure, you can use it. She's like, may I read it? And then I'll decide. Wow. You know, That's incredible, say, Donna. Yeah. Yes. So I've, I've been very lucky hmm. with, really lucky in in my writing that I've had been able to have a, a kind of a, a click with these artists these cover artists um and actually worked with one of my favorite artists is Matt Kish I don't know if you know Matt Kish yeah. um he has a big book out with Tin House several years ago where he illustrated every page of Moby Dick wow um <laughs> And he's an incredible artist and wow. I've loved his work for so long. And I own some of those Moby Dick pieces. And mm. um, when I was, I was started, one of my chapbooks is these very strange um, poems that are based on the myths about the Amazon dolphins, which is that they're shapeshifters oh. and that they come on shore in the, in the evenings and, you know, seduce young women. Um, and I don't know why I was writing about that, but I was, and I was like, wow, I, you know, think I tweeted like man I would just love for Matt Kish to illustrate the cover of this chapbook and he was like well, send it to me and he ended up doing 10 full color what paintings that are in the chapbook um no. because he he was very he was like all oh, these poems are really cool and visual I can do you mind if I do a bunch of art for them and I was like do I mind no oh um, and so I actually own them now he sent them to me. Um, oh, Donna. When, here, I'll show you. Hold on one oh second. Oh, my goodness. I'd love a little to peek see at it. a few of them on the wall. Um, All right. So you have done collaborative work. <laughs> Those are beautiful. So the top one was the cover. Oh, I love it. And then some of the others were in, in the book. Yeah, I mean, he's amazing. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's the idea about permission comes back again, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I would have said, oh, that artist is never going to say yes yeah you know yeah. they're oh they're they're never going to say yes they're never going to want to work with me because you know who am I I'm some schmo you know that's mm -hmm. you know 
doing a chapbook or a book with a small press and it's not going to make any money and, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really going to get them a whole bunch of exposure or anything, you know, why would they want to, to do that? And I've just been really lucky mm-hmm. and really pleased um, to have bumped into good people that, that are looking at how the, how their work integrates with the work that I'm doing. And it's, it's been a really um, lucky experience. I think, I don't think Mm -hmm. a lot of people have that, have that experience. When you said illustrations, for some reason, I was thinking black and white. And then when you just, Donna walked over and showed me some of the, the paint, I want to call them paintings almost on the wall and their color and the dolphins are pink. Like, mm-hmm. oh, beautiful. Donna, is that chapbook still available? It is. That's from Redbird Chapbooks. Oh. And it should still be available there because their website is now back up and running. Amazing. Uh, and what's the Enca- title? Encantado. Encantado. Okay. Definitely. Okay. That's amazing. And yeah. I, I need a copy. So I'm going to get a copy. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. I, was I, was, I think amazing. I have one here. If I have one here, I will send it to you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Wow. That is so cool. That's so good to... Yeah. I mean, in the, the fact that, you know, like, so someone tells, you no, like go ask anyways, because you never know who's going to say yes. And, um, like you can't let fear keep you back. Um, and, um, oh, and one other thing I wanted to say about your cover up to everything there is, and the art on that cover is that like, you know, you, you're like, oh, there's this nest and there's all these flies and I, and I just want to say like they're, um, they're green bottle flies. And so it's like beautiful. Like, and if you just glance at it, it looks like a disco ball or yeah, it looks it like something yes. like, and then you get closer and I was like, Oh my goodness, those are flies. Like, and there, there are some scattered on the ground fallen with some of the, um, the nest material. So there's like also something about like falling falling apart or something like not you know like there are things about being held and there are things about falling apart and um it's really incredible I think um and it kind of goes with um something in your book that I think I was really surprised by and I'm not sure I should have been surprised but um that I you know that you have a spiritual practice and I mean, you have an Ash Wednesday poem, you have kind of some liturgical moves throughout this book. And I don't think I knew that about you as a poet either. I think that's, um, I think that's showing up more in my work. Mm. Uh, One, as I get older, um, two, in this book, particularly because, you know, it's, it's, it's the nature of um, religion to supposedly comfort, right. Mm -hmm. In times of loss. Um, and when you find that that's, that what you thought was going to buoy you doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some, some disconnect that happens there. So, you know, there's some of that that's, that's gone into the writing, but I think that's shown its face in, you know, in, in all the books. I mean, I know there's a poem in, in every love story that's called litany, I think. And Mm -hmm. there's one, um, uh, it's called maintenance. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I have used that terminology that the original mm-hmm. title of the um, second book was actually washed with hymns and singing. Oh, wow. Um, it was a completely different book at that point, wow. but, um, and some of my, you know, that's a gorgeous like, title. 
Please, I, please use I have, it still. <laughs> I've got that in my pocket for, I need to be in yes. a poem or something. Yes. Um, That's beautiful. But the, the poem last year that was in Eco Theo is based on the doxology, you know, mm-hmm. so I think that that, that practice or certainly that tradition mm-hmm. um, that I was, that I was raised in mm-hmm. uh, is showing itself yeah. um, in some of the work that I've been doing lately. I have some newer work that um, is kind of marrying those themes of, of the body mm-hmm. and grief, but also that of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, that's some of it's, it's done and kind of being, it's circulating and some of it's still being worked on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's one thing, you know, there are people who use um, liturgical language um, and kind of the, you know, they, there's definitely, um, how should I say this? I mean, there's a kind of purchase you get by using religious language. Like it's got such a huge history. So if you throw in an altar or matins or ash winds, like it brings a whole lot with it, right? It's language that's pretty weighty. Um, but then like, that's different, I think, than having a speaker who exits a marked being on Ash Wednesday, who literally has an, the oil and ash on their forehead. Like, um, and I think, you know, the importance of the body in your work and, you know, the importance of that opening poem, right? Um, the kneeling, the genuflection the fact that it matters, the shapes that our bodies take, um, which is very like Anglican and very um, Episcopalian, right? So um, like, I think when I, attend, I attended a Anglican church for a little while, an American Anglican church had so many problems, uh, but, but I was really moved by how the body in worship and that like when the gospel is walked down into the um, aisle, you orient yourself towards the body you turn your body towards the good news and um that that to me is so deeply moving i think that what we do with our bodies matters so much um and i mean i always think of how ann garson talks about church is this contemplative space as like that mass is the same everywhere and so she goes to mass and she sits just to be in this like not knowing presence of God. And I think that is really, I think that is a work that poets do, um, regardless right. of whether they have a specific tradition or not that they engage yeah. with. Well, I was raised Catholic um, and Catholic mass is, it is predictable. It's predictable in form and in the body um, and in the ways that you move um, during mass. Yeah. And so that's a really interesting thing for her to say I and I we attend a Lutheran church now mm-hmm. um which is very similar yeah. but the the physicality of the mm-hmm. service is different mm-hmm. which should which seems very strange to say but mm-hmm. it you know there's a one like so when we you know during the funeral services for my parents like those that muscle memory yeah just came back you mm-hmm. know I hadn't been to a Catholic mass in a very long time and yet you still remember every you know, every kneel, every, you know, every turn, every um, sign of the cross, you know, all those yeah. things that are part of, uh, of a mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we go back again to the body, right? Yeah. You know, that the, the body is also 
the body isn't just a physical thing, but the body is a kind of a manifestation of whatever spirituality you practice, yeah. whether that's, you know, meditation or yoga or, um, mm. you know, uh, every spiritual practice has some kind of bodily uh, incarnation that goes with yeah. it. Yeah. And I love the idea too, that like ritual is threaded throughout our days, like that we have so many different kinds of rituals. In fact, I think for me, that was the hardest part about really stopping drinking was that ritual, like the evening drink, mm -hmm. but unfortunately it was evening drinks. Um, not <laughs> so, so like, um, yeah, like giving up that, what do you put when you take a ritual away, you have to put something in its place. Like you have to invent something else or create something else. Like is it herbal tea? Is it sparkling water? <laughs> what would it, you know, what are you, you can't just have a, a, a gap in a hole. Um, and I'm also really interested that that, you know, it sounds like it was part, part of your grieving process too, is to inhabit um, those certain, those certain traditions. Like it's like a touchstone. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that idea of, of ritual is really interesting because, um, you know, talking about these themes of the body mm. and, and love poems and, you know, maybe spirituality or ritual, um, you know, I'm in a space right now where, you know, my ritual has changed, you know, dramatically mm. in the last two years because I retired mm. from the work I had done for 36 years, you know, and so, you know, to have a new ritual, mm. you know, has mm -hmm. been um, challenging and really interesting in a time when for the first, you know, year of that, you know, new life, I wasn't there, you know, <laughs> we weren't really going anywhere, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so having to develop a way to, you know, I guess, you know, not just, not just look up at the end of the day and go, what did I do today? Yeah. You know, um, has been, has been interesting. Um, because I had all these grand plans about, you know, volunteering I was going to do and then all of those opportunities um, that I had, you know, lined up kind of got shut down because they were all mm. in person or they were all dealing with, you know, young people yeah. and, and um, it, it's been very, it's been very interesting to kind of develop a new ritual yeah. when for years work was the ritual. Mm -hmm. Um and now that my son is, is, you know, 29 year old grown man, you know, those rituals of being a mother are different mm. too. You know, you don't have the, you know, the daily, uh, you know, even if it's just the, you know, make sure they wake up and go to school and make sure they get food, you know, ritual, you know, that's been gone for multiple years yeah. as well. And so as you go through your life, you're, you know, what you're, I think that, that idea of us, you know, a connection to something other than your roles um, becomes important because now I was, you know, people would say, well, what do you do after years? It was, I was, a I'm a teacher, mm, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, you know, or, you know, I'm my, my son was at home. I'm a mom, you know, those were the roles that were assigned, you know, and now I don't have, I mean, I'm still a mom obviously, but not in the demands of being a mother of a 29 year old yeah. are very different from the demands of a person living in your house. So, um, like kind of developing those new rituals has been yeah. an interesting process for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My parents are going through some of the same, 
same things. And it's interesting. I, I think of that. There's this Simone de Beauvoir, you know, who always spoke about projects, like choosing a life project. And um, one of the things she says is like, children aren't a life project, like, because the care for them, which I, I disagree. And I agree with this quote, like the care for them ends like, and I do see certain people. Changes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't does. end. It changes. It totally, but, yeah. but sometimes empty nesters, you know, which will like, that's the a term we use, right? Like the nest is empty. Like, Oh my goodness. What do I do right. with this nest? Um, but then there are these life projects like writing that are with you, right? Like these things, like, what are those projects? What is that labor? Like that labor of yours that, you know, actually it transcends your teaching career, which is incredible. It transcends um, childcare. It's like above and beyond. Um, and I, I love thinking about that quote. And then she also says, there are some things greater than happiness. Um, which I think is like such a, um, is an incredible quote. And it's also very anti-American and I love it. Um, <laughs> because like what, you know, like, what is that? Like, or is it all personal or are we thinking about our communities or, um, but yeah, yeah, I agree with all everything you've said. And that's really interesting to hear about rituals. Um, would you like to close us out with a poem? I will. And I think I'm going to read a poem that I think has all the things we talked about. Amazing. Um, so it has nature, it has loss, it has love, it has some um, concealment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's from the, from to everything there is. And it's oh. called the opposite of amnesia. Tonight, the wind is a frenzy of gulls, a broken vow, and grief makes a dry docked promise of sailing. I say I do not want this cross, even while I smelt the nails, choose the boards, eye the edges straight. A wave overtakes me, drenching my materials, this weight. I reside with it. This breached bow I try to repair with patience and handiwork. I deftly string a thousand shells before they tumble and leave me weeping on the pier. I have been nothing but brine and iron for weeks, and yet you remain stalwart while I struggle to return to human form. I avoid the mirror. We search for omens on the beach sigh and dive together into a surf of tangled sheets. Gorgeous. Thank you so much. Thank you. A beautiful love poem. Hmm. Opposite. Again, stealing. I'm terrible at titles, so I steal my titles. That title comes from a fallout boy song. So <laughs> my amazing. references are all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I mean that's what Elliot said, right? Um, that amateurs borrow professional steel. That's right. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being here with me today, Donna. Thank you so much for having me. I loved our conversation. Me too. Are there any um, forthcoming projects you'd like to let our listeners know about? Well, I will let them know about, I, I've started an online reading series, which is called 100 Pictures of Honey. And 
Han is actually one of our February readers on February 17th. And uh, that's, you know, we're all over on all the social medias. That's been kind of my labor of love that I've decided um, that will become one of my, one of my rituals. I, I thought for years about starting a journal or a press. And I thought, I thought again, <laughs> when I, you know, as I'm working as an editor for Rhino now and seeing how much work goes into the production of, of something mm. like that. Um, but I love uh, hearing other poets um, reading. And I, that's been a lifeline, you know, kind of for me when, when we were shut down and I'm, I was hoping, you know, I'm not hoping that, you know, COVID continues, but I am hoping that, you know, online readings continue because yes. I think it gives us such access that we didn't have before. Absolutely. And so that was my, my goal was, well, what can I do to maybe help that happen? So um, I don't have any, you know, I mean, I have individual poems forthcoming in places, but, um, you know, no big projects I'm working on with my writing right now, except, you know, just seeing what comes. Mm. But the reading series is kind of my labor of love right now. So mm. thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. And listeners, thank you for spending time with us this morning. And if you would like to read more of Donna Boyer's work and purchase some of her many beautiful books, please just check the links in our show notes. And thanks again. Thank you.